Hello guys, it's Joe Wolverton, Teacher of Liberty, back with you today, and today is going to be another one of those days that it just so happens to line up with something very important in American history. Now, I'm going to pull the curtain back from the wizard for a second. What I try to do, although it's not possible to do all the time, is I try to do, so on Tuesdays and Thursdays, right, is when these come out, and I try to do a world history and an American history. So that we get a little bit of both. And I count like Constitution and stuff, obviously, in American history. Although it affected the world, I know. The world. It affected the whole... No one, Carl Sagan? The world. Anywho, it affected the whole world, but it's part of American history. So when I divide it up like that, I try to do that, except for when there are things in history that I think are important. Not I think. That are important. Important enough to bring to your attention that... Sometimes we have to like stutter step, but last time, didn't I do, I did Cicero's Philippics, so that's world history, even though it has sort of a, uh, an effect on us, Cicero, of course, being one of the men most often quoted by the Founding Fathers, but today is an American History Day faux show, because on this very day in 1774, the very first Continental Parliament met in Philadelphia. Psych. Obviously not. Obviously you should have been, I hope, I hope none of you were like, oh, it used to be called Parliament. I hope you were like, that dude just had a stroke. Obviously, there was no First Continental Parliament. It was the First Continental Congress, Second Continental Congress. And today, September 5th, 1774, the first Continental Congress met for the first time. Now, boys and girls, men and women of all ages and all the ships at sea, there is something very important about the word Congress that I hope will blow your mind. I would hope that you would all go, Blurp, know what he's talking about, and turn it off because you're just like, I already know all this. But I doubt that you do. And again, that's not your fault. It's not my fault that I wasn't taught it, right? Our teachers weren't taught these things either because they haven't been taught for over 100 years. And so that's not anybody, you know, you can't point a finger and say, oh, my teacher was the worst. I'm going to sue my school district. Dude, you could go, then you'd have to sue every school up to, you know, grad school. Because these things just aren't talked about anymore. And you'll see why really quickly, like all of these bloody podcasts, you're like, why was I not taught that stuff? It could have made such a big difference to our history. And that's why you weren't taught this stuff, because it could have made such a big difference to our history. And the people that manipulate, right, things don't want us being educated, right? Because you can't be ignorant and free. That way, if they keep us ignorant, we will never be free. Knowledge will forever govern ignorance, etc., etc. Knowledge being the only guardian of true liberty. You see what I'm saying? You can't say, why weren't we taught? We weren't taught on purpose because of stuff you're about to see with today's podcast. Now, I want to say before we go, thank you very much. We're getting closer to that 1,000. I went through was it yesterday, the day before, and made sure I got 
the books that the person's, the little Liberty Library, the person's going to win, whoever, once we get a thousand, I'm just going to spin the wheel of destiny and somebody's going to win that little, you know, Library of Liberty for a small donation of a thousand. No, I'm just teasing. I'm teasing. It's free for if we get a thousand people, which I, I would think would be easy, but maybe not. Maybe I don't think I'm that interesting, but I think a thousand people would be willing to do a brother a solid and just be like, mm, click. You know what I'm saying? It'd be different if I had like 1.6 million followers. Then you're like, I'll watch dude video, but I'm not subscribing because who cares? But when you have like, I don't know what we have, like eight, whatever we have, it's like, I'm going to throw a brother a bone. You know what I mean? So maybe pass it around to your friends. Maybe, I don't know, maybe have carve it into the side of a mountain. I don't know, maybe send it if you're getting married. Lots of y'all are getting married. Congratulations to my man Zach Hansen for joining that club. Uh, Gentry Webb, I don't think she ever watches these, but Gentry, you just got married. Congratulations to all y'all and you're, and you're getting married and your stuff like that. Maybe within your wedding announcement, maybe put, you know, we are registered at Amazon, Target, Dollar General, and don't forget to subscribe to Joey's podcast. It seems like a, a small favor to ask, right? <laughs> Anywho. So on this day in history in 1774, the First Continental Congress met. Now, our founding fathers, a significant portion of those people that met were lawyers. But not only were they lawyers, which is lawyer. You don't go to law school. Please stop saying lawyer. I know I've said this before, but I literally heard it the other day. And this lady on a video was like, I think it's so cute when Southerners say lawyer. Well, I think it's so weird that anyone else would say lawyer considering you don't go to law school. I didn't know it was a Southern thing to pronounce words correctly, but maybe it is. You go to law school to become a lawyer. It's pretty simple. You don't go to law school. I didn't go to law school. Maybe some of y'all out there that are lawyers went to law school. And maybe that's why you're really successful is because you're like keeping it from the rest of us. Tell them to go to law school. <laughs> while y'all are all going to law school and getting super rich. Any road. So. A lot of them were lawyers. They took language very seriously. They chose words very deliberately, right? They knew that words meant something. And in the case of the First Continental Congress, they kind of knew that what they were doing was pretty important, right? This had come at the, you know, as British deprivation of Americans as Englishmen, just continuing on, right? The White Pine Act, the, the Stamp Act, the Tea Act, the Townsend Acts, the Coercive Acts, the Sugar Tax, the uh, military occupation of Boston, etc., etc. All this long train of... So these guys at the First Continental Congress, they knew that they were doing something important. It wasn't like they were like, you know, a social club right? They knew that this was something. So the words that they used were going to be appropriate to the situation, right? They were not as casual a society as we are, right? It's like I've said before, if you look at, at videos of people going to a baseball game in the 50s, the guys are in at least, you know, 
white shirts, trousers, you know, they're dressed like they're like we would say going to church or something. Whereas today, literally, I go to a lot of baseball games. I can tell you literally people go barely clothed. And if they're like clothed completely, it's usually in, you know, it's a lot of times in pajama material. So society today is much more relaxed, casual. So when they go about calling for this assembly of representatives from the colonies, right, they're going to be deliberate about that. And the words they use are going to be very specifically, particularly chosen because they have distinct meanings, words. I remember one time getting taught there's no such thing as a synonym, which is actually true. There's no such thing as a synonym. Maybe some of y'all right now are like, because words, there are different words because they have distinct meanings. Now, there are words that are similar, obviously, but there's really no such thing as a synonym. There's no such thing as a word that means exactly the same as the other word, right? Not if you're being particular, not if you're being deliberate about your choice of words, okay? Which we should do, particularly when we're doing something as historically uh, impactful as meeting together as representatives from the several colonies to discuss, oi, what are we going to do about my man over there doing some things? You know, all the, the parliaments and whatnot, right? I wonder if they ever like, no, they did. Parliament Funkadelic, I wonder if they were ever like, you know, and thou shalt pay a tax on tea, signed parliament, and then dot 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 funkadelic I, don't know, I i would but that's because i like parliament funkadelic who wants the funk we want the funk gotta have that funk anywho so they met in philadelphia which as i was reading this the other day and it's like this made philadelphia the first capital of the united states <sighs> no it didn't no, no, it didn't. It made Philadelphia the place where they were meeting because some of them, there were a couple of delegates who were born and raised in West Philadelphia and they spent all their days on the playground and then a couple of guys who were up to no good started getting in trouble in the neighborhood and a couple of them got in one fight and their mom got scared and said, oh, you're moving with your aunt and uncle in, in Bel Air. So... When they met in Philadelphia, it did not make Philadelphia the capital of the United States. In fact, guys, there is no capital of the United States. Our founding fathers did not call it the capital. They called it the federal city. They called it the federal district, right? They called it lots of things like that. But they never called it the capital of the United States because... There's not meant to be one. Now, it's the Capitol building, right? But that has more to do with what goes on. But anywho, that's not the point. What's well, kind of the point? Because it does get to what we're talking about. So, now, the British, the, the American guys that met at the First Continental Congress this day in 1774 in Philadelphia, you would think, being because they were there to complain that their rights as Englishmen were being violated by the king and parliament. 
their rights as Englishmen under the Magna Carta, under the Bill of Rights, under the Petition, all of that. They were like, these. this is the English Constitution, which the first one of y'all that comment and say, there is no English Constitution, I'm going to lose my dang mind. And on my tombstone, it's going to say, you know, whomever killed Joey by saying there was no English Constitution. There was. There is. Okay? So when you read Samuel Adams or John Adams or anyone talking about the Constitution before the Articles of Confederation, which was our first capital C Constitution, they're talking about the English Constitution. When people say there's no written English Constitution, that is not true, but that's what we're all taught. I bet if you go get an American history textbook and you're like, doodly do, you're looking up stuff, you know, that happened around the time of the War for Independence, you'd be like, there was no English Constitution. Okay, written, England does not have a written Constitution. England does have a written Constitution. It's just not on one document, okay? The documents that constitute the British government are our documents. They're written down. They're just not in one document. They're on many, many documents constitute, hence the word constitution, of the British government. Okay? So please don't do that. Don't kill me today. There's no... Because you be so, people get all like, oh, I can get him on this one, boy. Okay, there's many you can get me on, but that ain't one of them, so please don't kill me today. All right, so they're Englishmen. They're complaining about the deprivation of their rights as Englishmen, and they have a common enemy, which is England, and so they're like, let's meet together. Now, as Englishmen, one would expect that they would have been the first continental parliament. That's the English lawmaking body. Now, we're assuming that they're going to make some rules. This gathering of representatives in Philadelphia, they're going to make some rules. Now, it seems to me that English people, which they, you know, considered themselves, and which by the Magna Carta they most certainly were, because they were just, you know, the Magna Carta covers the Englishmen at the time, all their descendants, wherever they live, forever. That's literally in the Magna Carta, so they were covered by Magna Carta, for show. Now, you would expect that Englishmen would name their deliberative body Parliament. It's kind of like how when they came over to America, they didn't start freestyling names for their towns. They just called their towns after towns, where, boys and girls? In England, that's right. Because they'd come from England, that's right. So it isn't like they, you know, arrived and they're like, hmm, what can we name this place with this big rock? Let's name it. Smurfendork Rock. Yes, Smurfendork. Today we, the pilgrims, landed on Smurfendork. There's some psychology people out there, some like psych majors and psychologists that are going, the fact that that dude used the word Smurfendorf or whatever I said, that's a sign of some deep-seated trauma. Brother, you don't even know. No, I'm just teasing. I don't have deep-seated trauma. It's very near the surface. 
Calypso. You would think, just like they named their towns, Plymouth, Lincoln, Boston, right, that they would name, you know, even Jamestown is named after King James. What shall we name this town that the king gave us permission to settle? Let's call it Raging Catfish Town. Yes, good idea, Elijah. What do you say, Lemuel? I say we call it Narmertown. That's the same thing, buddy. You're just being pedantic now. You know what I'm saying? They named it Jamestown. They weren't really trying to be clever, and that's good. We don't need you to be clever. If you, as an American, you know, you probably call your, call, you know, you went to Mars, and you're going to make a deliberative body. You most likely would call it Congress because you're going to be like, I don't know what we call Congress. Let's just not put thought into stuff we don't need to put thought into, right? Sorry, my nose is itching. So, is that stuff I shouldn't do? I don't know. I don't watch, like, I don't know, like, would a professional podcaster be like my nose itches, or would he be like, pause, use DaVinci Resolve, and edit? I don't know what you'd do. I don't have, I don't have people. Come on, man. We, this is an in-house. This is an in-house situation here, right? All right. So you would expect that the Englishmen get together, and they in a deliberative body from all around, and they're like, "What are we going to call ourselves, fellas? Parliament, sweet First Continental Parliament. That would be expected." But they didn't. Now, there are, oh, the word Congress, man. We still use it, okay? The first sentence of the Constitution, not counting the preamble, which is not technically a legal part of it. The first sentence is, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress, not in a Parliament. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside. Nope, that's the same reference. That's a foul on me, right? That's a foul. That's, that's a penalty on me. I will take the 10 yards. Although he did not become a member of Congress until the Second Continental Congress, Benjamin Franklin said something about a man named Emmerich DeVottle and a book that Emmerich DeVottle called Law of Nations. In a letter in 1775, so the Second Continental Congress, because the first met today, 1774, right? Why did they meet in September? It's all a planting thing, man. It's why we have summers off, right? None of y'all out there sowing and planting and reaping and whatnot. None of y'all out there doing that. But historically, we were an agrarian society, so you, you schedule your stuff according to the, the farm schedule, right? So that's why they met in September. But any road, Benjamin Franklin was in England when the first one met. He came over, got elected, got in trouble in England for calling out people. It's pretty, pretty sweet, pretty sweet. Read that story. Maybe I'll tell it sometime. Who cares? But he said this in a letter to Charles Dumas in 1775. This is what he wrote. Pay attention. And this all coming back, remember, what's the point? Why is it? First Continental Congress and not First Continental Parliament, which would make sense, right? Would make total sense that they would call it Parliament. Deliberative body, blah, 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 Parliament. Nope, Congress. Why? Let's get into it. All right, so he wrote this. Benjamin Franklin, 1775, a letter to Charles Dumas, wrote, 
Uh, Emmerich DeVardle's book, The Law of Nations, has been continually in the hands of the members of our Congress now sitting. Now, why would a group of representatives from the same nation need to be carrying around a book about how to deal with representatives of other nations? Are, 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 they wouldn't, right? If you're there to deal with representatives from your nation, from your same nation, you don't need a book on international relations because you're not international, man. You're one nation, right? But here's Benjamin Franklin saying, we all, every member of Congress sitting carries around his little Emmerich Devoto Law of Nations, this international book about international law, international relations. Why? Think about it. They would not, you should be seeing now what I want you to see. As for the use, I, I, I'll show you what use they made of it, but I want to use this book also, Emmerich Devoto's Law of Nations, to show you how easy it is to know the definition of the word Congress, but not only that, why did they call it Congress, not Parliament? Not only that, but to better understand every word in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Because if I'd asked most of you prior to this, the end of this uh, podcast, why we called it Congress and not Parliament, you'd be like, oh, because we were trying to break away from England and we didn't want to call ourselves English stuff. Come on, man. New York, New Haven, New Hampshire, New Jersey, right? Come on. New Canaan. We could Lincoln, Boston. We weren't clever with that. So it wasn't like we wanted to name our stuff anti-Britain. No, because it wasn't a parliament. It was a Congress. Now, this book that Benjamin Franklin said every member of Congress carries, they carried it because... It was a book on international law and international relations, and they were there to meet together. They weren't there making treaties with England. England wasn't interested in how its colonies interpreted the laws that they said. I don't care. You're not involved. You're, you're our servants. You're our children. Children don't get to opine about the laws made for them by mom and dad. You just do what we say. Which is true, and that's absolutely true, and good, and everything. That ain't the history of the colonies. But that's how many, most English members of Parliament felt. That's definitely how the king felt, right? So, by knowing that they had this book on international relations, we can understand about why it's the First Continental Congress. Plus, we can use that book and the, the lessons taught, the rules set out by Emmerich de Vaudel, we can, we can understand every word in the Declaration and the Constitution. We don't have to guess. And it's a very simple process that avoids the absurdity of today when people are like, well, they use muskets, so I guess you have to defend your house with a musket, which actually is cool. That musket ball will put a hole in a brother. I mean, like a whole wall. No 9 millimeter action, man. You get shot by one of those, like, Brown Bettys, you, your driver's license will cry. It'll hurt so much. 
I mean, seriously, those things. But you see what I'm saying? We would not have the absurdity of people arguing about what key words mean if we were still taught Emmerich Duvado. Hence why none of us have been taught this for about 100 years. All right, first, we need to remember that the Constitution is a contract, right? That's the first thing. We've talked about that a million times. It is a contract formed among the states to create an agent to perform certain enumerated, listed duties that they could have done for themselves, but decided to give an agent authority to do it, giving themselves time to handle matters within the state. Contract. Constitution equals contract, where the states got together, created an agent to do things for them that otherwise they could have done for themselves, but they created an agent to do it to give them time to handle the matters in the state. When it came to things that they had in common, why not hire a guy to do it, or several guys to do it? It makes sense. Now, why would they do that? You're like, there's so much more to do in D.C. than in the state, than in my state government. That ain't how it's supposed to be, and again, a reason we ain't going to get taught what Congress is at school. All right, I want to read to you from Federalist 45, where James Madison sets out the distinct spheres of authority as intended by the Founding Fathers in the Constitution. Distinct meaning between the states and the federal government, okay? Federalist number 45, for those of you scoring at home. Here we go. James Madison said, The powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined those which are to remain remain can't remain somewhere you aren't all right i can't remain in hong kong today because i ain't in hong kong i can remain in memphis but i can't remain in hong kong those powers which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite can't be limited federal government few and defined state governments numerous and indefinite the former the federal government will be exercised principally on external objects such as war peace negotiation and foreign commerce with which the power of taxation will be connected the powers okay so the federal government war peace negotiations with other countries commerce with other countries got it very simple few and defined the powers reserved to the several states will extend to all the objects which in the ordinary course of affairs concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people, including internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. Okay, that is how our federal structure is supposed to work guys the federal government's powers are few and defined where do they get them from the states some of those powers remain in the states those that are granted which means in writing that's another word we might get a chance to do that i don't know we will those which are granted to the federal government are few and defined, right? War, what do you say? Uh, war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce. The rest of that stuff concerning your life, liberty, and property, 
and any internal improvements, that is to say roads and bridges and whatnot, and the prosperity and the internal order, that's all the power of the states. Guys, would we have a federal government that is 20-something, now near $30 trillion in debt, if it only handled those four few and defined things? Now we go with whose fault is that? That's another issue altogether. But the Constitution is quite simply a contract where employers, the states, and created an agent, an employee, the federal government, the agent, the federal government, right? Principal and agent, the principals, the employers, the states are the employers. They made a contract creating job description for an employee, also known as an agent. The agent has no authority to act on its own. All, that's why the federal government has no sovereignty. Because anything it does is subject to the approval of the principal, to the employer. Right? Even when it does stuff within its you know, job description... Right? That job description can be changed by the boss. The boss can say, Do you know what? I've decided to split this job up and you're only going to be doing this from now on. You have, at that point, you have what? You have two roads in front of you. Accept your new job description or quit. Simple as that. Or try to do a job you're no longer legally allowed to do and get fired. I guess you have three, three roads in front of you. Ignore the contract and get fired not like the contract and choose to quit or do what the contract says so the constitution is a contract wherein the states as a, as principals that is to say employers got together created an employee the agent which is the federal government the agent has no authority outside the contract to act on its own because that is where the principals the employers specifically list the few and defined powers of the employee, the agent, right? The agent has no legal authority to act outside the boundaries of the powers granted to it by the principals, by the employers in the contract. That is known, boys and girls, in the law. Not It may be something different in the law, but in the law, that's known as the Four Corners Doctrine. Put simply, the Four Corners Doctrine is a principle of contract law that requires a court to interpret a contract according to only what is contained within the pages of the contract. Four Corners Doctrine. Right? Because four corners of a piece of paper. The agent, that is to say the employee, that is to say the federal government, has only the authority to act that is granted to it 
by the principal, that is to say the employer, that is to say the states that are listed by them in within the four corners of that contract. Anything outside of those enumerated listed powers is beyond the authority of the agent and the court will completely ignore it and will rule against the agent for violating the contract. Do you understand? Simple. The Constitution is a contract. The states are what known as what's known as principals or employers. They got together, created an a job, an agent to act on their behalf. All the powers of that agent are listed within the contract that created the position. The agent's authority, the agent has no authority outside of the four corners of that contract. Whatever is listed in the contract, that's its authority. All else remains, again, using words particularly, James Madison said all other powers remain with the states, right? So if I hire you to do nothing but go and get my groceries every week, and one day you come back and you've bought a bunch of books for me on the credit card that I give you to use, I'm going to say, you turn, you know, right around, take them books back. Now, what else could I do? I could say, oh, okay, cool, thanks. But then I'm starting down a bad road, right? Do you understand? You see a little bit of that fault thing that I was talking about? Whose fault is it? That we have a government, you know, $30 trillion in debt. If, if you go out, if you have, you and I have a contract. I hire you as my agent. In the four corners of the contract where I created your job and your duties, I say, you are simply supposed to buy my groceries every week. And I say, at what store and what the budget and all of this kind of stuff. But then you decide, you know what? Joey likes books. I'm going to go get him some books. And you bring books back to me. If I accept those books, I'm starting us down a bad road because next time you're going to be like, Joey likes pens and pencils and notebooks and stuff. And if I say, wow, thanks, man. Guess what I'm doing? I'm damaging that contract because as that agent, as I accept acts of that agent, acts of my employee outside of the authority that I granted to my employee, that's problematic because, <clears throat> pardon me, that's because later on the employee, if he starts really acting out and he's like, you know what, Joey likes me to be well-dressed for work, I'm going to go down and buy myself some new clothes. And I'm like, no, what is this $1,000? Why did you buy $1,000 worth of, worth of Kango hats? And you're like, well, you let me buy books, you let me buy pens, you let me buy paper, you let me buy whatever. And I'm like, but I didn't say you could buy Kango hats. Well, you also didn't say I could buy books, pens, and paper, but you accepted that, Holmes. Yikes. Yikes. So there's, there's obligations, duties of vigilance on the part of the employer as well. But it does not change the fact that the Constitution is a contract. 
the states are the principals, the employers they created, an agent, an employee of the federal government, and all the federal government's authority is within the four corners of that contract known as the Constitution. See? All right, now, this brings us back to my man, Emmerich DeVottle, Swiss, pour some out from a dead homie. I'm not going to pour it out because it's too tasty, but you know what I'm saying. If you're at home and you have a beverage, pour some out for our dead homie, Emmerich DeVottle. How can I? <laughs> now, why would they have a copy, the First and Second Continental Congress? Why would they have a copy? Why would all of them be carrying around a copy of a book, Law of Nations, about international law? It is certain that the delegates to the Continental Congress would have used that book in their creation of a confederation to unite in opposition to a common enemy. That the creation, the ability and the mechanism by which independent sovereign republics create a confederation to unite for common purpose is a significant part of Devadal's book, Law of Nations. Because as independent republics, you might have a reason to come together with nearby sovereign and independent republics and say, Oi, you know how this guy with the funny hat is constantly doing stuff to deprive us of our rights? According to the English Constitution, there's not an English Constitution. <coughs> Anywho... You know how he's always doing that? Well, he's doing it to both of us, so why don't we both get together and maybe put up a united front? It'll be stronger, right? Than just each of us individually. Let's get together. Devadal's book, a significant part of that book, Law of Nations, which may or may not be included in the Library of Liberty that someone will be winning. Wink. In that book, a significant part of it is instructing on the rules for sovereign, independent republics or even monarchies to form confederations to unite against a common enemy. Now, I'm going to make an entire episode about that part because a lot of y'all oh, that think we're one nation and that thinks secession is unconstitutional, immoral, treasonous, insurrection, are sure enough not going to like what Devadal has to say about that. And you're sure enough not going to like the influence he had on our founding fathers. And you're sure enough going to want to forget that Benjamin Franklin said every member of Congress carried around a copy of that book. But that's for another day. Today we're just going to talk about the part where Devadal helps us understand why our ancestors called it the First Continental Congress and not the First Continental Parliament, as you would expect Englishmen to do. Sir, have you ever, I mean, okay, calm down, Joseph, calm down. There's those of you out there right now are saying his name's not even Joseph, he's calling himself a name that isn't even his. I know that, you don't have to tell me. I'm getting back to my Zen place, okay. Have you ever wondered, like, I'm being serious now. Well, yes, I am being serious. I was teasing about, the, well, I wasn't teasing, but anyway. If I could have one voice fewer in my head, do you know the 
calm. No, I'm just kidding. There's only seven, and I can handle that. So, did any of you ever wonder that, honestly, like, why did we call it First Continental Congress? Why not First Continental Parliament? I, okay, and, okay, this is a little reveal of Joey that you're all probably going to go, no, that's not a, that doesn't surprise us, son. When I was in sixth grade and we were learning about the First Continental Congress, but we'd been talking about all these things that Parliament had done wrong to the colonists, I'm like, I honestly asked, asked, why did we call ours Congress and they called theirs Parliament? Sixth grade, my teacher got angry at me. First of all, I was disruptive. You know, that's not on the sheet for today, buddy. That's not on the lesson plan for today. Okay, you must not know. You must think you're somewhere you're getting educated. We're just giving you a letter so you can go on to another indoctrination camp. That's all we're doing. Don't ask. I really did get in trouble for asking that question. Why did our guys call it Congress, but their guys call it, why, why are we, I literally was like, you know what? You're just trying to distract from the lesson. Okay, I won't say her name because, I mean, she's probably dead by now, right? How old are you in sixth grade? Like 12, 13? Like, what is that, like 20 years ago? Any rate. So, I asked that. But have any of you ever wondered why we didn't call it the First Continental Parliament? Maybe it's just me, but anyway, back to the bottle. While the delegates to the Continental Congress would have used this book to guide their creation, right, of the the confederation that they would have formed in opposition to England, it that's a significant part of that book. Another significant part of his book, Law of Nations, is how to interpret contracts and treaties and deeds that use language that is no longer common at the time that people are trying to interpret the ancient or old deed, contract, or treaty. That's a significant part of his book. Book two, a significant part is, okay, let's say you have a very old contract, a very old treaty, a very old deed, and you're wanting to interpret that, but those words, they don't mean the same now because this is so long ago, the words have shifted in meaning. He says, here's how you do that. So, guys, it's honestly the grand, I mean, that's brilliant. It's the grand key. Literally everything in our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence instantly becomes so much clearer when you know that one, yes, it is an old contract. Or in the case of Declaration, you know, an old declaration, right? It's an old legal document which, if we knew de Vottle, if we were taught it desquinkle, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't be in these situations, hence why we're in the situation of trying to argue against people that say we don't have the right to keep military weapons because it was, they just had, you know, smooth bore, whatever, muskets. We, do you realize this is why this stuff is kept from us, y'all? Because it avoids these arguments. And by avoiding these arguments, it keeps us united, it keeps us knowledgeable, and it keeps us free. But however, you take out this knowledge, you stir that pot up, 
with people arguing about things that they no longer understand because it's words we don't use the same way anymore in old contracts. And we get divided up into these groups and divide them so that we may command them. Divide et impera. Keep them. And we already talked about this. Keep us divided so that we don't notice the people behind the walls of the castle stealing from all of us equally, indiscriminately. But if we knew this, Devadal Book 2, a significant portion of Law of Nations is devoted to how you go about interpreting words that are in old contracts, treaties, deeds, etc., Now, that is all you need to know about why we're not taught that anymore. Except, it is taught by the teachers I mentioned before, the esteemed Dr. Spencer Bowers and the equally eminent Dr. James Russell. Those guys, still, you will hear the name of Emmerich DeVottle in their classes, and may God bless their righteous endeavors to maintain that level of knowledge that will keep us or that will someday restore our liberty. All right, so let's look at a few of the rules set out by Devadal. And when it comes to interpreting words in old documents, okay? So Book 2, Chapter 6, Chapter 17, for those of you scoring at home, Book 2, Chapter 17, Section 262, The Necessity of Establishing Rules of Interpretation. That's the, that's the title of the chapter. It says, If the ideas of man were always distinct and perfectly determinate, if, for the expression of those ideas, they had none but proper words, no terms but as such were clear and precise and susceptible of only one definition, there would never be any difficulty in discovering the meaning of their words by which they intended to express it. Nothing more would be necessary than to understand language. In other words, if people used words and those words never changed meanings, we wouldn't need to interpret, we just need to understand language. If it's in English, we could interpret it even if it was written a thousand years ago because they only, words didn't change meaning and we, could ease, we don't need to interpret something if it's easily understood. But we do need rules because words do change in meaning, okay? So, um, and he, do, he does say something that's very interesting. He says, um, uh, but the case is much worse if we consider that fraud seeks to take advantage of the imperfection of language and that men designedly, meaning conspiratorially, throw obscurity and ambiguity in order to be provided for a pretense for eluding the true definition. It is therefore, did you hear that? Do, you th do we live that day when men conspire to throw obscurity and ambiguity into the contract in order to be provided for a pretense, for eluding it, for evading it, for violating it? Well, this is confusing. So, so we do need rules. I mean, he said, let's begin with those that tend particularly to this last end, with those maxims of justice and equity, which are calculated. Now, why? Oh, my gosh, I get so fired up about this. Why is he putting these rules down on paper in a book for people? Because he says these are maxims of justice and equity, which are calculated to 
repress fraud, and prevent the effect of its artifices. In other words, to prevent Supreme Courts, Presidents, Congresses from defrauding us by purposefully artifices, artificially throwing ambiguity and confusion in these documents so as to commit this fraud and deprive us of our rights. Guys, duh, DeVottles never studied. I mean, boom. All right. First general maxim. It is not allowable to interpret what has no need of interpretation. The first general maxim of interpretation is that it is not allowable to interpret what has no need of interpretation. When a deed, a deed, now he says deed, he switches words up, deed, contract, treaty, same thing. Any old legal document is worded in clear and precise terms when its meaning is evident and leads to no absurd conclusion, there can be no reason for refusing to admit the meaning which such deed naturally presents. To go elsewhere in search of conjectures in order to restrict or extend it is but an attempt to elude it. If, if this dangerous method be once admitted, once you allow these people to start using these conjectures and pretending this ambu stuff is ambiguous and pretending all this, once you allow them to do that in order to what? Defraud us in order to restrict or extend the terms of the contract in an attempt to lose. If this dangerous method be once admitted, there will be no contract which will not be rendered useless. Boom! All this, no matter how clear and precise the terms of the contract be couched, all of this will be of no use if it be allowed to go in quest of extraneous arguments to prove that it is not to be understood in the sense in which it is naturally presented. When they said bear arms, they meant weapons. That is very simply known by looking at people who wrote and used that very word at the same time it was included in the Second Amendment. But people who do not want us to realize that, they throw in ambiguity and confusion so as to conspire together to deprive us of our rights. And once that dangerous practice is allowed, then no ancient contract, no constitution is useful at all, ever. Boom! Now, next general maxim. Neither of the contracting party has a right to interpret the treaty according to his own fancy. The third general maximum principle on the subject of interpretation is that neither of the parties interested in the contract has a right to interpret the deed or treaty according to his own fancy. For if you are at liberty to affix whatever meaning you please to my promise, you will have the power of obliging me to do whatever you choose contrary to my own intentions and beyond my real engagements. On the other hand, if I'm allowed to explain my promises as I please, I render them vain and illusory by giving them a meaning quite different from that which they were presented to you and in which you must have understood them at the time of accepting them. Boom! 
No, Congress, you don't get to say what your job description is. Nope, it's in the four corners of that contract, mate. You don't get to say, yeah, but what it really, no, 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 because what happens then? You make all of this vain and illusory. You're just throwing in ambiguity and confusion by deciding that you get to on your own, as he says, for your own fancy. Next, General Maxim, the interpretation ought to be made according to certain rules. Every deed, treaty, and contract must be interpreted by certain fixed rules calculated to determine its meaning, as naturally understood by the parties concerned at the time when the document was drawn up and accepted. Now, y'all, pause and rewind and listen. I, I don't, I don't want to make this three hours by repeating this stuff. But basically, this is what we call in the law today a meeting of the minds. In order to have a contract, there must be a meeting of the mind. For a contract to be valid, the parties to the contract have to understand and agree as to what they are contracting to do. If I use in a contract the word dwelling, for example, some people might... They might think that means a house, but to other people it might mean something else. You have to be precise in the words you use, not casual. You have to be precise because just as Devadal just said, right, he said what? He said that the contract needs to be interpreted according to the meaning as naturally understood by the parties at the time when the contract was drawn up and accepted. You and I have to have a meeting of the minds. We both have to understand the terms of the contract as they are, right? That's what we have to have. This is another piece of very clear evidence that the men who created the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence knew and understood and agreed on exactly what they were saying in those documents. They understood these rules. Every man in our Congress has a copy of that book in his hand, Benjamin Franklin said. Now, with those general guidelines out of the way, Devoto comes up with some specifics. Those are the general guidelines. Rewind them, please, guys. Please rewind them and learn them. Know it like you wrote it, y'all. And we can get this thing back on track. I'm telling you, you see how easy it could be with just a little bit of restoration of this knowledge that has been purposefully, as he said, designedly, conspiratorially kept from us. So here are a few specifics, and I'm going to try to hurry. Uh, since the sole object of the lawful interpretation of a, of a deed ought to be the discovery of the thoughts of the author or authors of that deed, wherever we meet with any obscurity in it, we are to consider what probably were the ideas of those who drew up the deed and interpret it accordingly. Boom! The Constitution is not a bloody living document, y'all. We are to interpret any obscurity that we meet in it as to what probably were the ideas of those who drew up the deed and interpret it according to how they understood the words when they used them. Do you see what I mean? I'm an originalist. I'm a num num You know what? I don't care. Walk your... My religion. Walk yourself to another country where we don't use these rules, man. There's a lot of countries in this world. Find one you like 
the way they do things and move there. There's a lot of English-speaking countries. Socialist English-speaking countries. Knock yourself out, man. Come on. Take one month of your, of your cell phone bill, buy yourself a one-way ticket, and get to getting. Next, the terms are to be explained conformably to common usage. Those who form the contract concur in the same intentions. They agree in desiring the same thing. And how shall they agree if they do not perfectly understand each other? Without this, the contract would be no better than a mockery or a snare. The Constitution has now become nothing more than a mockery and a snare of liberty that it was designed to protect. Why? Because we haven't been taught these simple things that every child knew 200 years ago. In the interpretation of treaties, compacts, and promises, we ought not to deviate from the common use of the language unless we have very strong reasons for it. In all human affairs where absolute certainty is not at hand to point out the way, we must take probability as our guide. In most cases, it is extremely probable that the parties have expressed themselves conform conformably to the established usage, and that probability affords a strong presumption which cannot be overruled, but by a still stronger presumption to the contrary. How was the word used at the time? We are to presume that they used it in the way, the same way it was used in other documents at that time. When therefore, next maxim, I'm trying to hurry y'all. When therefore an ancient document is to be interpreted, we should be acquainted with the common use of the terms at the time when it was written, and that knowledge is to be acquired from documents of the same period and from contemporary writers by diligently comparing them with each other. This is the only source from which to derive any information that can be depended on. How those words were used during the same period by contemporary, meaning at the same time, writers. That's the best way. And he says the only way. The usage of common language being, as everyone knows, very arbitrary, etymological and grammatical investigations pursued with a view to discover the true import of a word in common usage would furnish but a vain theory, equally useless and destitute of proof. You can look up the definition, that's fine, but words change meaning, right? Words change meaning over time. So you can look up etymologically and you can look in a dictionary, but words change meaning. The he says the only source where we can derive any information that can be depended on is how a word was used in a document from the same period as the document we're trying to interpret. In other words, it would be helpful to look up the word Congress in a dictionary from the time of the Continental Congress, but we could also look to how the word Congress was used in a document from a writer 
writing at the same period. Now, let me give you a little help with that. Let's see if we can discover now, using Devoto's rules, why our ancestors called it the First Continental Congress and not the First Continental Parliament. Let's, we'll go to the dictionary at the time first. This is Dr. S Dr. Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language. Congress is an appointed meeting for settlement of affairs between different nations. What? An appointed meeting for settlement of affairs between different nations. Different nations. Not different parts of the same nation. Different nations meeting together for the settlement of affairs among them. Now... What about a document from the same, a writer writing at the same time how a word was used? Edmund Burke, in a speech to the electors of Bristol in 1774, the very year the First Continental Congress met for the first time on this day in 1774, Bristol, the electors of Bristol were complaining, our, our interests, the interests of people in Bristol are not being heard in Parliament. Edmund Burke responds this way, Parliament is not a Congress, which is ambassadors from different and hostile interests, which interests each must maintain as an agent and advocate against others' agents and advocates. Parliament is a deliberative assembly of one nation, with one interest, that of the whole, where not local purposes but, and not local prejudices ought to guide, but the general good, good resulting from the general reason of the whole. Congress, meeting of ambassadors from different and hostile interests, interests each maintain as an agent and advocate against other agents and advocates from other nations meeting together. That is a Congress. That's how the word was used by a contemporary writer in a document the very same year that the Continental Congress met. That is, should explain it all. Now that you know these rules, guys, go back and read the Declaration and the Constitution. See if you really know what those words mean. It is critical. If you are to defend liberty, if you are to defend the Constitution and the Declaration, you must know what those words mean. I mean, think about this. Here's a little something from the Declaration of Independence. That these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to totally be dissolved. And that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other things which independent states may of right do if we are the United States after declaring independence from the state of Great Britain then do you see how each one of those former colonies being a state they were using that word to define Great Britain and New Jersey as the same thing guys this stuff really matters and if we are going to save our liberty and if we are going to be a union of states we need to know what states are why you now know why it was the first continental congress not the first continental parliament knowledge will forever go in ignorance knowledge will forever govern ignorance and it becomes every man who has been warned to warn his neighbor go warn your neighbor see you next time